Welcome to Health Essentials, a Cleveland Clinic podcast. There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends, but who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. And today we're taking your questions regarding any digestive issues that you may have. Before we get started, please remember this is for informational purposes only and not intended for, um, to replace your own physician's advice. Thank you so much for coming in today, Dr. Oh, Risk. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> sure. Now, when we talk about digestive terms, we have from swallowing issues to GERD to colon, um, stomach, gut issues. Um, so if you want to kind of start off by telling our audience what you do, here and what kind of patients that you see. Absolutely. So I, I've been at the Cleveland Clinic for about 10 years now. Uh, I'm a general gastro, my practice is mostly general gastroenterology, community-based in one of our family health centers here. Although I do a lot of work here on main campus in regards to quality and clinical operations. So um, I, do under, uh, I do see a variety of different disease conditions, including the liver, the pancreas, uh, things that involve the esophagus, the colon, as well as the small intestines. Great, excellent. Well, we'll start off by uh, reading some questions that we actually received from our Facebook Live event page. Um, and we'll start with Karen. Um, Karen says, what's the best way to deal with constipation? And it all started post-menopause. So very common uh, in the post-menopausal or in the perimenopausal period for a person to develop constipation. There are hormonal changes that happen within the body that uh, through complex mechanisms can exacerbate constipation. In addition, as we get older, we begin, there's a higher likelihood of us being on medications. There's a higher likelihood for whatever reason, whether it's arthritis or whatnot, but there's an increased risk of decreased activity. Mm -hmm. And uh, as well, our gut tends to slow down as we get older. There's the impact of gravity. And so it's not surprising that you've developed constipation, you shouldn't be alarmed by it as long as you've had a screening colonoscopy when you've turned 50 for colon cancer screening. A lot of it is symptom treatment, so uh, addressing some of those things. So if you can become more active, then become more active. Uh, if you can, eat uh, between 25 and 50 grams of processed and unprocessed fiber per day. That will help you have a more regular bowel movement. Uh, in addition, you should look at your medications and see which ones might have medication side effects in, that they include constipation and try to address that with your primary care physician. Uh, but in addition, you can also try to take a stool softener. Once you've tried to address some of those lifestyle issues, then a stool softener such as Go Lightly, uh, I'm sorry, Miralax, polyethylene glycol, uh, in a small amount uh, taken daily or every other day or titrated to to a bowel movement every few days is reasonable, as well as uh, other different types of laxatives, such as Dulcolax or even Senecot for those who are more severe. And lastly, if those over-the-counter stool softeners and laxatives are not effective, then contacting a local gastroenterologist to discuss what other pharmacologics might be helpful to address uh, you know, your constipation. Now, Dr. Risk, is it healthy to take laxatives like on a regular basis? So, you know, the, 
laxatives, when, when we use the term laxatives, we're alluding to uh, medications that are stimulants for the bowel. And although there is a concern that a person's colon becomes more dependent on the uh, stimulation effects of the, uh, of the laxative, uh, there is no concrete evidence that there's any long-term effects that can, be, uh, that can occur due to that. And so for the right patient, uh, it's something that can be considered. Great. And then we have um, Allison. Uh, what happens if the side effects of um, all acid-reducing medications are so profound you can't take the medications, yet the acid reflux must be treated? So, you know, uh, acid reflux also increases as we get older. Our diaphragms, just due to gravity, begin to sink a little bit, and we have an increased disposition as we get older to develop what we call hiatal hernia. Mm -hmm. And the muscle at where the esophagus and the stomach meet um, begins to relax uh, transiently uh, for extended periods of time, which can cause periods of acid reflux. Um, when additionally, medications as well uh, can slow down the gut and predispose a person to developing acid reflux as effluent from the stomach backs up into the esophagus. If you can't take an acid reflux medication, so the function of an acid reflux medication typically is to, uh, to bind to the acid pump in the stomach in some fashion in order to stop the production of acid. That's the primary mechanism that's, that's, uh, that the medication works through. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes uh, we make things worse by ingesting acidic things that really the medication wouldn't really address in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so minimizing acidic foods such as tomato-based products, such as um, coffee, such as soda pop, or anything that's carbonated, has carbonic acid in it, uh, wines, uh, even uh, certain types of herbal uh, supplements or herbal additives such as mint can decrease the muscle tone uh, of, the, you know, of the muscle that is between the stomach and the esophagus and cause issues. And lastly, there are some complementary medicine uh, uh, ideas behind the use of acid in order to improve uh, you know, under, you know, use acid to treat acid reflux with the thinking that the reason acid reflux occurs is because, not because of a lack of acid, uh, too much acid, but because there's a lack of the acid in terms of relative to the, uh, the food that a person's eating. And so there is some complementary medicine literature around hydrochloric acid tabs, around apple cider vinegar, mm. around other types of non-pharmaceutical uh, treatments in order to address acid. Mm -hmm. And although the, the literature isn't convincing, it's relatively low risk and something that you might want to try. Great. Thank you. Okay. And uh, we're starting to get the questions coming in live. I have Gail. Um, what causes gas? So gas can be, <clears throat> is essentially caused by uh, either the food itself or by digestion of foods by bacteria within your small intestines, mm -hmm. in the, in the, at the tail of your small intestines, or in your colon. And so our gut flora likes certain types of foods. So foods that are high in sugar, foods that are carbohydrate-based, gut flora tend to metabolize a lot more. Legumes um, have uh, gas-producing uh, ingredients that when, when bacteria 
begin to digest it, cause a lot of gas byproduct. And so avoiding those types of foods can reduce uh, gas intake. Excellent. Um, and uh, we have Jean. What causes constant nausea whenever I eat? I have all the things that I see in my clinic. Nausea is... <laughs> is, is it one uh, of them? Well, no. It's one of the most challenging. <laughs> okay. It's one of the most challenging because oftentimes it has nothing to do with the gastrointestinal tract. Mm. Um, you know, it could be that there is something neurological. It could be that there's something hormonal. It could be that there is something else such as diabetes or, um, you know, a variety of different issues, including medications that a person is taking, mm-hmm. that can cause nausea. And so it's... it's you know, it's important to take a very staged and structured approach when looking at what is causing nausea and starting off by looking at some of those other things after initial evaluation uh, for common gastrointestinal issues have uh, been excluded. Okay, great. And then uh, we have Nicole. I have recently been diagnosed with gastroparesis. I'm on a GJ feeding tube. I'm a young mom who, ha- um, who was healthy otherwise. Are there any successful treatments happening at Cleveland Clinic right now? So we do have a gastroparesis clinic uh, run conjointly by Dr. Michael Klein and Dr. John Rodriguez. And uh, there are clinical trials that are currently available for uh, patients who meet criteria. Now, I don't know uh, in your specific situation whether or not you would be eligible for those clinical trials, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something that may be worth uh, looking at uh, by reaching out to our gastroparesis clinic. Okay, perfect. Um, and jumping on to Lori, um, since raw fruits and vegetables irritate IBD, what are other options for eating healthy that won't cause a flare? So, you know, the, the thinking behind uh, eating uh, a high roughage diet and causing a flare in inflammatory bowel disease is that the, the fibrous nature of those foods can, can scrape against the inflammation of the colon or in the small intestines and cause irritations or can be bulking. And so if there's a tight area within the small bowel or in the colon, it can cause uh, pain or cause obstruction-like symptoms. And so depending on the type of inflammatory bowel disease that you have, uh, you don't necessarily have to be as stringent to that diet uh, and a lot of patients who have inflammatory bowel disease can eat some raw, uh, some fruits and vegetables in some amount. Now, if you if you're a person that can't, then you know oftentimes boiling them, uh, although it takes the flavor out of it and is less flavorful, is still a way to denature the fiber in a way that allows it to be digestible and be less. Uh, r- rough on the uh, on the intestinal lining and the colonic lining. Is there like a, an optimal IBD diet? Uh, so usually the IBD diet we, we talk generally as a low rough you know low low residue diet what we call a low residue diet. But having said that, I, there's no really prescribed amount of fiber that is required um, or suggested just because everyone's different. Sure. Because inflammatory bowel disease can impact. Uh, a person from the uh, esophagus all the way to the rectum. And so things might not be um, applicable for everyone. Thank you. Um, And jumping on to Joan, uh, can you explain Barrett esophagus and any new treatments? Yeah, so Barrett's esophagus is a condition in which the lining of the esophagus begins to look like the lining of the small intestines. Um, And that is is thought to be due to chronic irritation of acid 
into the esophagus. Uh, and there are different types of Barrett's esophagus. There are Barrett's esophagus with um, no abnormal cells. There's uh, Barrett's esophagus with mild abnormal cells, major abnormal cells. And then Barrett's esophagus, in rare cases, can lead to esophageal cancer. Typically, um, the treatment for Barrett's esophagus, once the diagnosis is made, is really just about screening uh, at a proscribed interval, depending on the type of Barrett's esophagus that you have. So in patients who have no abnormal cells, uh, the interval is a lot less than a patient who has a lot of abnormal cells, or what we call high-grade dysplasia. And the treatments that are available for each of them uh, begin to vary. So a, a patient who has significant abnormal cells uh, needs to be screened or surveyed much more frequently, but then can have different types of treatments from uh, mucosal resection, so where we actually go in and just take off the lining of the esophagus that has the Barrett's, to radiofrequency ablation, where we, we burn off uh, through, uh, through a, a balloon-type catheter the lining of the esophagus to cryotherapy, which uh, uses uh, cold liquid in order to freeze the lining of the esophagus to cause it to slough off and, and regenerate anew without the Barrett's esophagus. Great. Excellent. Very informative. Um, so Jenny is jumping on to IBS question. Um, how do I know if I have IBS? And I know with IBS you can have symptoms from diarrhea or constipation. It could be sure. from stress or not. So I know it's a very general uh, term, but sure. I, if you can talk more about that. Yeah, so irritable bowel syndrome, it, first of all, I wanna say that it's a very common condition. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more prevalent in females um, compared to males, relative to males. We're not exactly sure why that is. Um, having said that, uh, you know, about 30% of females in the U.S. population have some sort of irritable bowel symptom. One important thing is to, uh, is to first uh, rule out whether or not there's a dietary issue that may be uh, causing your symptoms. So you may have, and typically what we say is non-concerning um, abdominal symptoms, uh, which are either associated with diarrhea, constipation, or mixed. Um, and so it's important, number one, uh, to know that a lot of times extensive studies are not necessary, especially if you fit the pattern uh, for irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, number two, it's important to exclude some dietary things. So sometimes an elimination diet is helpful. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, uh, it can be a good idea to screen for an allergy to gluten, for example, through a simple blood test. And lastly, uh, the, the, the prescribed treatment for irritable bowel syndrome is oftentimes symptom-related. And kind of understanding a person's condition, working through that condition, and kind of symptomatically managing it as needed. Now, with intermittent fasting, mm -hmm. I've heard many things that it's good for your digestive system. Mm -hmm. Is that something that would be not treatable but would help some, someone with IBS? So, you know, I don't know if we've seen any studies that have looked at intermittent fasting mm -hmm. as a therapy for the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, I do know that uh, there are certain types of diets that are helpful um, in identifying uh, whether or not a patient has triggers uh, that are uh, dietary. So, for example, the most common one is what we call the FODMAP diet, the mm -hmm. uh, F-O-D-M-A-P uh, uh, diet, and that stands for fructans, uh, 
uh, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, which are different types of sugars or sugar-based um, uh, uh, particles that are common in certain types of foods mm -hmm. and oftentimes can cause symptoms. And so going on a FODMAPS diet can oftentimes be helpful. Obviously, if you don't have symptoms when you uh, eat, um, then there's probably some sort of dietary trigger. Um, but I don't know whether or not prolonged fasting uh, is a therapeutic option. Okay, and I, um, I know you, t you talked about um, apple cider vinegar earlier. Sure. And I feel like I read a lot about it, and I was wondering, you know, it's, does it help with microbiomes? Is that what it's called, or the mother's uh, yeah. ingredient? Can you tell me a little bit more about that and if that is uh, good for your gut? So, you know, again, the literature out there is not very strong in mm -hmm. terms of being able to support it, but the thinking behind it is that because of, you know, the acid in the apple cider vinegar, as well as the, the mother, the yeast uh, that's in the apple cider vinegar, that some, uh, oftentimes it can help with digestion. The acidic part, the acid portion of the apple cider can help with the digestion. And the bacteria, uh, the, the yeast component of the mother can assist as a probiotic, as a natural probiotic. Anecdotally, you know, there are many people worldwide that swear by it. Like I said, there's not a lot of great studies around it, mm -hmm. but um, it is thought to help in, you know, it's something that, again, is low risk. It might be something worth trying. Great. Okay, and then I have um, Adrian. I have a bowel movement maybe once or twice a week, and it's been like that for all of my life. Is that normal or just me? Or am I in trouble for, the, for my life, for the rest of my life? And the, that's kind of when we asked the question earlier, you mentioned age, you mentioned mm -hmm. medications. But if someone's like Adrian is having this kind of issue all their life, yeah. could, could that be normal? Adrian, you are normal. <laughs> that is absolutely okay. You know, everybody has uh, a different normal, mm -hmm. and as long as um, this has been the way it's always been for you, I, I wouldn't try to go chasing your tail on this. Okay, good. Um, and we'll jump on to Leslie. Um, what is the best probiotic in your opinion? Um, so the studies have shown that in certain uh, types of populations of post-infectious uh, conditions in patients with certain types of irritable bowel syndrome mm -hmm. that uh, probiotics containing bifidobacterium, lactobacillus, and acino, uh, those two specifically mm -hmm. uh, are, are the ones that I would recommend in terms of making sure that if you're buying a probiotic to kind of look and make sure that you have those in there. Can you find that in any foods that, like yogurt? Is yogurt something? So, yeah, so yogurt, we have a lot of lactobacillus, mm -hmm. and it's something that would, uh, especially if you can make it at home, it's amazing how, you know, if you get the right setup, mm -hmm. one gallon of milk translates to, you know, fit, you know, 25 small cups of yogurt, um, and if done naturally, uh, can be very helpful. Perfect. Okay, and, um, Bonnie, I have GERDs. Is it a good idea to take turmeric since it's a spice? Yeah, so there's not a lot of data around turmeric in terms of uh, its, it, it, you know, whether or not it helps GERD. Uh, turmeric, as far as I'm aware of, does not worsen GERD. Mm. Um, having said that, it's, um, every person is different. Um, and like I said, if you're looking for it as a therapy for GERD, it's, it's usually thought of as being having a natural anti-inflammatory effect. Um, the mechanism for that is something that I'm not aware of how, how that works, mm -hmm. but it's 
you know, a lot of people have been eating turmeric for many, many years, um, you know, for, for millennia, and yeah. uh, it, it's low risk. So if it's something that you want to try, I think that's something that's reasonable. Great. And now we always tie in the diet to um, every disease that we talk about. So I have Gary. What is the one best food overall um, that you would name as a top digestive food for all? So in other words, um, how could you basically prevent digestive discomfort with your diet? So again, everybody is different. Mm -hmm. And so I think at some point it's important to consider doing an elimination diet and figuring out what works best for you. Generally, uh, sugar-based or carbohydrate-based foods are, uh, can cause high amounts of um, gas, bloating, IBS-like symptoms. Um, but everybody is different. A lot of people have problems with raw fruits, raw vegetables. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I suggest what, we call, what I call a full elimination diet, which is a white protein, white rice, and water diet mm -hmm. for a duration of two weeks. So white protein would be chicken, uh, lean pork, lean fish, um, uh, as well as turkey. You can bake it, grill it, broil it, or boil it, but you shouldn't pan fry it, stir fry it, or fry outright. Mm -hmm. No breading, no sauces, no gravies, no ketchup, no mustard, no teriyaki sauce, no sauces of any kind. Mm -hmm. And um, white rice cooked in chicken broth or water and water. So no fruits, no vegetables, no breads, no pastas, no coffee, no tea, no dairy. <laughs> that sounds and kind of strict. It's, it's, a ter it's a terrible <laughs> diet. Okay. You'll, you'll, you'll remember to hate me at some yeah. point. Uh, it's for usually for a duration of two weeks. Oh, okay. And, um, well, that's not too bad if it's two weeks. Though. Right. So, you know, you, and it's, not, it's a terrible diet. It's not, it's not good for you in the sense that it's not balanced. Um, but it's a diagnostic test that we use. Mm -hmm. And if after two weeks a person has improvement in their symptoms, uh, especially if you have severe IBS, or, uh, then you can begin to add a food group every two to three days okay. and, and assess whether or not you're having, uh, your symptoms are starting to come back. Okay. And symptoms can be constitutional. Like it's, you know, it could be fatigue. It could be tiredness. It doesn't necessarily have to be gastrointestinal. And again, it depends on the person. It depends on the person. Okay. And um, how about, I, I've read a lot about ketogenic diet, because I know you're talking about carbs and sugar. Sure. So I was thinking of the ketogenic diet, and you're supposed to eliminate all sugar, most carbs. Sure. Um, high fat, high protein. Can you speak to that at all with, with relation to the digestive? Yeah. So uh, you know, generally speaking, a ketogenic diet, you know, the major concern with that is... You know, sometimes it, there is there is the concern of kidney dysfunction that can happen with mm -hmm. a ketogenic diet, and uh, the fact of the matter is the body does need a little bit of sugar, the right type of sugar, mm -hmm. in order for it to function. Especially, you know, your your neurological system uh, needs fat, it needs a little bit of sugar, and so are different blood cells uh, as well. And so, I, I typically, if you want, you know. If you want to use that as a short-term um, stimulant of your metabol for, for, for your metabolism, that's something that you could consider, but it's not something I would recommend long-term. Okay, thank you. Um, jumping on to Tiffany, uh, what type of treatment plan would you offer for recurring colitis? So colitis, I'm, I'm not clear in terms of what, you, what, how, what you're referring in terms of colitis. A lot of people call it irritable bowel syndrome colitis. Mm -hmm. A lot of people... Uh, but there's also ulcerative colitis, and so I'd, I'd have to, I'd need more information in order to be able to adequately answer that question. Okay, great. Um, and uh, Oscar, there are studies on proton pump inhibitors increasing the risk of gastric cancer. What is your opinion on this? Uh, I am not aware of uh, any studies that increase the risk 
of, of proton pump inhibitors increasing the risk of gastric cancer. I do know, and that, that could be just my own negligence or ignorance, um, I do know that uh, they, they have been tied to, uh, in large population studies, to uh, Alzheimer's, neuro neurodegenerative disorders, mm -hmm. heart conditions, um, as well as, you know, there is the known risks that can occur in terms of causing diarrhea, kidney uh, issues in, in certain types of patients, um, uh, but I'm not aware of gastric cancer. Okay, thank you. And then I have uh, Brandon. Um, I'm taking antibiotics, and one of the side effects I'm having is loose stool. Probiotics. Yeah, so, uh, you know, antibiotics, while you're, if, if you're having the diarrhea while you're taking the antibiotic, very common. The mm -hmm. uh, best thing you can kind of do is uh, change the way you eat, increase the amount of fiber that's in your diet, and kind of uh, increase a, a little bit more bulk in there. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're talking about diarrhea that's occurred since you've taken antibiotics, then you should be tested, uh, and this is, is new, then you should be tested for uh, bacteria, a, a bacteria that's opportunistic in the gut called Clostridium difficile, or C. diff. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's, not, uh, if that's negative, then a probiotic, in those cases, there have been studies that have shown that there is some benef benefit to that. Okay, excellent. And let's see, um, Dedeen, um, I've had H. pluri, H. pylori, is it pylori, twice. Can I prevent it again? The question with H. pylori is, it, is whether or not having the H. pylori uh, causing you uh, to have any clinical issues. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, H. pylori, especially in the developing world, is exceptionally common. Mm -hmm. uh, and people will have it almost their entire life and really be asymptomatic carriers. And so um, the fact that a person have, has H. pylori doesn't mean you have to treat the H. pylori. And so there are only, a, you know, there, there's certain conditions such as gastric cancers, lymphomas, uh, certain populations that are at higher risk where you would consider treating the H. pylori, patients who have an ulcer disease, documented ulcer disease, where you would treat the H. pylori. Otherwise, I think oftentimes we kind of chase our tails and try to, in terms of trying to get rid of it when we don't necessarily have to. Okay, great. And then um, we have room for one more question. Um, we have John. Uh, my CT scan detected fatty liver last month. Can I drink beer or wine during the holidays? Yeah, so uh, a little bit of beer, a little bit of wine mm -hmm. uh, should, shouldn't be an issue. Uh, you know, obviously, fat, fat in the liver can be due to uh, drinking a large amount of alcohol over a long period of time, but also can be caused by uh, metabolic issues such as obesity, such as diabetes. And so, uh, you know, you'd have to discuss with your doctor where, you know, which one they believe it to be and whether or not there's any liver enzyme elevations that might suggest inflammation and make the adjustments. Uh, so if it's diabetes or, or uh, metabolic syndrome such as obesity, then probably weight loss is going to be your biggest bang for your buck. Uh, if it's uh, you know alcohol consumption, then you may have to change uh, your approach to that as well. So the answer is yes in moderation? Yes in moderation. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Okay, well that's all the time we have for today, but before I let you go, do you want to tell our audience anything that maybe we haven't touched on? You know, there was a recent study that came out uh, that uh, suggested that there was an increased risk of colon cancer in younger patients, age 20 to 45. And I know there's been a lot of press about it. 
the increase was from 3.9 per 100,000 to 4.2 per 100,000. So it's a small increase. Um, we don't know the, why that is. We don't know whether colon cancer in young folks is a new type of colon cancer. Mm. We don't know whether or not uh, it's uh, some of the uh, environmental things and nutritional trends that we're seeing in America that may be contributing to this, such as ob the ob obesity crisis sure. and, and the increased risk of cancer. So, you know, a lot of folks ask whether or not they should be screened. This, this study doesn't really change our approach to screening and surveillance for colon cancer, but it does raise, uh, you know, our radar in terms of being able to watch a population-based way whether or not this is a real trend and what possible etiologies could be. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for more health tips and information, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, at Cleveland Clinic, just one word. And thank you so much for watching. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.